0: Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Ron McGill is a rare breed. As a boy, he hand-fed squirrels in his backyard. He grew up dreaming of watching lions chase gazelle across the plains of Africa, like they did on his favorite TV show. A lot of us had that dream, too. The difference is that Ron grew up, but he never grew out of it. Ron is the communications director for Zoo Miami. He's a spokesman for the animals. Ron has become famous around the world for his animated animal advocacy, even speaking out against projects that endanger Miami ecosystems. On the Dan Lebitard Show, he answered harebrained call-in questions like, who would win in a fight between a crocodile and a bull shark? He narrated animal videos with zeal and the appropriate animal sounds.
1: He looks at the female and he goes, hello, 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 hey baby, how you doing? How you doing? No, how you doing? Hey, wanna go out? Oh, baby, Yeah, 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 yeah. Latin
0: America got to know him too as the animal expert on Sabado Gigante.
1: meses ya. Muy fuerte puede ser muy peligroso, pero nunca deben tener un como
0: Ron's a noted wildlife photographer. He started an endowment that's raised millions of dollars to help animal populations in the wild. And he's written a new book, The Pride of a Lion. Ostensibly, it's the story of a lion cub raised at Zoo Miami. But it's actually the biography of the most interesting animal, Ron himself. Miami's lucky to have him, and we're lucky to have him in studio today. Ron, welcome to the show, man.
1: Oh, Carlos, thank you very much, especially for that introduction. Wow.
0: (laughs) You know, I, I don't know if we'll get you excited, uh, animated enough to uh, to bring out the best in you like the Levitard <sighs> show managed to do <laughs> to get that. But you it's something about when people ask you specifically when they sh- when you are like in the presence of animals or you kind of almost put yourself in their
1: frame of mind that you come alive you know Carlos I have been living this scam for over 40 years of of, of working at a job that's <laughs> not work at all I mean you know that old saying that says if you do something you love you never work a day in your life yeah I felt that I've been doing that for the last you know four plus decades and and i can't believe i get to do those things i mean i was a kid i was you know i was born in a small apartment jackson heights new york my Mm. father as a cuban immigrant had only a third grade formal education still the smartest man i've ever known but third grade formal education i was the first kid in my, my family to go to college um but back then growing up you know i never thought i would be able to experience the things that i've been able to experience i mean I've traveled around the world, I've been to Africa over fifty times, the rainforest of Central South America over a hundred times, Antarctica, the Arctic. I, I I I still pinch myself thinking, how did I get to do this? Um, and I keep wondering, you know, when is that scam gonna be realized and say, hey, wait a minute, McGill, get out of here, you know. Somebody else needs to do that.
0: <laughs> like when when is somebody gonna clear the buffet? Right? Exactly, so because it,
1: it's just been unbelievable for me to do these things and and to experience the things that I've that I've been able to experience. So when I get to share those stories, I mean, for me, it's exciting because I relive them myself.
0: Right, right, and and I mean, we get that like that that enthusiasm. If folks have been listening for the last thirty seconds. You get it. Um, this uh, you you got you wrote this book, um, which uh, which it's co written with uh, Greg Cody. We were just chatting. Greg about it. Cody, he's a, a columnist at the Miami Herald and a colleague of yours as a as a guest appearance on those Libertad show, uh, uh, you know, on that on those episodes. Um, Talk to me about why it was interesting to you to write this this book, and now and this is very recent. There's up to, through like September and October. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: You know, one of those things that I've been really lucky to do is to experience things not just in the wild, but also at the zoo. Um, and and I, for me, I. I I believe in that saying that says, in the end, you protect what you love, you love what you understand, and you understand what you're taught. Mm-hmm. Animals teach me things every day. That's such
0: a great line from the book itself that, that you yeah. include. That, that, it's that idea that um, we have to get people to understand something for them, for them to then care about it. Exactly. And the
1: and, and and thing, you know, we've heard that word anthropomorphic, mm-hmm. you know, giving human qualities or human feelings to animals. And I think that word is really... An injustice to animals. I think it's very self-centered of us to think that we as humans are the only ones that can feel love, that can feel fear, that can feel happiness, uh, you know, jealousy. Because animals do feel those things. I'm t- I've worked with them all of my life and I see that. Almost every day I can see some type of reflection of that feeling, that emotion that I see in an animal. This story was a composite of all those emotions. Jealousy, love, fear, hatred. I mean, all of these things came in this story because this is about a cub that was born at the zoo, it was the first male male lion ever born at the zoo in the zoo's history. And I've been there since the beginning of the zoo. Since it was uh, Miami uh, Metro since Zoo. Since it was Miami Metro Zoo when we opened in July of 1980. And um, so it was a historic moment. Uh, and of course, you know, you have that that image in your head, the king of the beasts. this is mm. the royal guy, so we're gonna really build a story around this guy. And it was great, except that he was the only one born in the litter. And being only one lion born, lions usually have between two and six in a litter he was not able to really stimulate enough milk production in his mother. She was a great mom, but she wasn't producing enough milk. We noticed he was losing weight; he was not really thriving. Mm-hmm. So we had to supplement his food, and we said, "How are we going to do this? You know, how are we going to separate him from his mom's so we can give him a supplement of food?" We didn't want to pull him; we didn't want to hand raise him. I think that's a big misconception that people have: is that oh, well, they'll just they'll just uh, give him milk by hand. Yeah, we'll just give him milk by hand everything, and then we'll raise him, and it'll be also cute. He's going to be like our pet. And you've ruined the lion. Absolutely, you that's ex- the lion. you're exactly right. You've yeah. ruined the lion. You know that that whole tiger king train wreck show that came out gave such a bad impression people was thinking this is what zoos do right they take the babies and they raise them and they take pictures with them and they exploit absolutely not that is the absolute opposite i thought the show did the opposite
0: i thought it was a cautionary tale like Folks, this is why you shouldn't have wild animals. Exactly, that
1: that 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 hopefully is what it did. But a lot of people looked at that and they painted with a broad brush and they said, "Well, this is all all zoos do this. This is what they do." You see, and it couldn't have been so more disastrous for us because, listen, I want to make something very clear. I came to work at the zoo more than forty years ago, not to work for an attraction. I came to work for a facility that is going to protect animals in the wild where they belong. Mm. I would never, and this is going to be kind of. Contrary to what a lot of people might think, I would never, ever support taking an animal out of the wild and putting it in captivity unless it was a last-ditch effort to save that individual animal's life or to save a species. And zoos have been able to do that. We've done that with the California condor, the black-footed ferret, Arabian oryx, red wolf. These are animals that would be extinct today were it not for zoos, breeding them under human care and maintaining a population that has been reintroduced to the wild. Well, I feel like you've said that.
0: This idea that I, if if you're seeing an, an animal uh, only if it only exists in the zoo, we've lost. We've we failed. failed.
1: Yeah. We have totally failed. Yeah. And that I and I say that over and over like a broken record because it's so important to me that people understand that, you know? Yeah. That's why I came up with the endowment at the zoo. Just because I needed to I needed to validate me working at the zoo. For me to, mm. to to continue working at the zoo, I said, "Okay, what am I doing for animals in the wild?"
0: This is a but this is a very, this is a very grown up part of your life when you start thinking yeah. much greater, right? About like not just what am I doing on the daily basis, what am I leaving behind?
1: Exactly right. And that, and that, listen, Carlos, I carry I still carry a huge chip on my shoulder because we live in a society today that. Uh, Unfortunately Is a little bit shallow In the sense that You know They see you on television They hear you on the radio They think automatically You're important That that gives you credibility I'm not important Is what you're saying Well I'm not saying not. that Carlos <laughs> But you and I both know It's the producers It's the cameramen It's the yes. writers
0: The people who do all the work That you never see Can I shout out Our producers Elisa Arena Pumping her fist yeah, I mean, And Leslie people, Weiss These people Atkinson waving her hand Oh go on
1: Do all the work they I mean do. they do everything Richard and, Ives On and, the board and, and you never see them You never hear them right. But they are the foundation for everything that makes people like you and I look good. Yeah. So, those are things that I always carry to chip on my shoulder. Was I have people come up to me every day saying, Oh, I love the work you do at the zoo. And I say, You know what? I talk about the people who do the work at the zoo now. It's fun to do that, right? It is fun to do that. But I know what they do because that's how I started. Right. I started at the, at the beginning. I started as a zookeeper, became a lead keeper, senior keeper, you know, zoo supervisor, curator. I worked my way up. So, I know the irony is I worked so much harder back then when I made so much less that I work now. And it's one of these ironies in life when you say to yourself, gosh, and, and I never want to forget when I was out there in a rake and a shovel and a wheelbarrow in the pouring rain, you know, and, and the managers and the supervisors were in their office in the air conditioning, you know, and I'm out there, you know, raking and shoveling and cleaning up stuff. I, I never want to forget that. Okay. And when, the, when the, the founding director hired me at the zoo, he said something to me that at the time I was like, what the heck is this guy saying? It sounds crazy to me. But he said, pal, let me, let me remind you of something the people below you are much more important than the people above you. Mm. I will never forget that because I looked at him, I said, Mr. Yokel, you're the director, what are you telling me that, you know, the zookeeper that I manage here is more important than you as the director of the zoo? And he goes, absolutely, because if I see you paying more attention to me than I see you paying attention to that person, I know you're never gonna be a good leader.
0: It's one of those things where like, if, if your boss was missing for a day, it wouldn't make as much of a difference if you were out a zookeeper. Exactly, version, right? that's yeah. exactly right. You yeah. know, it's
1: it's it's, it's the frontline people. They are the backbone, the foundation of everything that's good that we do. So yeah. I carry that chip, and I want people to understand. Listen, I may be a face because people see me on television and stuff like that, but I am the least valuable person at that
0: zoo. You know, when I when I think about just having this conversation and and how how you kind of put this importance of animals like you you use your stage right your platform to like focus the attention right and i think most folks Right now, might be most aware of you because in the last few months and last years, oh, ago, yeah. you've been very vocal about a project that was endangering a natural area near the zoo. It was the the, the wild water park, park, Miami Wilds Water Park, the Wilds Water Park. Which at, at first they had sold, hey, we'll put a water park in this area where there's. I voted
1: for it. Yeah, I was one back in 2006 when we voted on that thing. I was part of that tree, that phone tree. I was calling citizens. Yeah, this is good for the zoo. Let's vote for it. This and that. But that was before we did all the studies and made us realize there are endangered species that need this as a foraging habitat. You know, we learned a lot from them. Uh, and that's when I said, "Listen." They said, "Well, this is all done." You know, it's a signed deal. It was a big developer's deal. There was money involved in going to the parks department. All this hmm. stuff. And I said, "This is not right, guys." And you know, I, I love,
0: I love it that in your mind, you're like, "It's never a done deal." This was exactly. Never, never I said, a done
1: deal. I said, you know, the more you have that type of attitude, it's a done deal, then it's a done deal. Yeah. Okay. You know that one of the sayings that I hate, I really hate it, is the people in the same. It is what it is.
0: Yeah. That's, what do you mean it is what would, it, would it is? we abolish that thing? Exactly. Start you know, with Nick Saban, who is who, the greatest proponent of it. You know, it's that's, like, it is
1: what it is. Stop it. It, mm-hmm. it will stay as it is
0: if you don't do anything about it. Oof. That's, it will stay as it is if you don't do anything exactly. about
1: it. Exactly. And, and, and I said to myself, and, you know, we were explicitly told you were forbidden from making a comment on this. Now, we were told the same thing on a project that was right next door to the zoo, a Walmart, L.A. Fitness, all this stuff, where they literally bulldozed a whole bunch of pine rockland, the single most critically endangered habitat in the state of Florida. Right. And I shut up because I was told to, to shut up. And I tell you, when that happened, and I saw the things that happened afterwards, we had a rabies outbreak. You remember the rabies outbreak that happened here in I South do, Florida? I do. Was that like was directly related. related. Exactly. Yeah. That was directly related to that pine rockland being eliminated, and raccoons being forced into other areas, stressing. Many animals carry rabies, okay? They don't, let me use an analogy. It's like the herpes virus. You know, a lot of people carry the herpes virus. You get a cold sore when you get stressed on your lip, right? Usually it remains dormant. Same thing with rabies in a lot of mammals. It remains dormant. It's not a problem. But if they get stressed, it could be a huge outbreak. And, and you saw this. So you saw all this happening, happening
0: once. You ha- You saw it happen once, and you said, even if it's to my career detriment,
1: I'm not going to let it it happen again. And I told them that. I was on the 29th floor of the government center where the mayor's office and everybody's office, and the wigs were up there. And I said, listen, guys, if somebody doesn't say something about this Miami Wilds thing and point out all the incredible research that our conservation scientists were doing Mm -hmm. at the zoo, they're Mm -hmm. the ones who got all the great data. If somebody doesn't say something about this, I'm going to pull the trigger. And I got the stink guy. You know, I go, well, you're, you're forbidden from doing so. I said, you can't tell me what I'm forbidden from doing as a private citizen. So I'm telling you right now, I'm pulling the trigger. And they all kind of shook their head. Well, oh, that wouldn't be a very good career move. You know, I got these little, no direct lines, but these insinuations. Yeah. Like, don't, don't do it. I'm, I'm the boss. And, you know, I said, and then I said, enough. And I wrote that letter that I sent out to all the media, to all the commissioners. I made it public and I said, come fire me. I, I'm done with this. I'd rather be fired hold my head up high than being a hypocrite because the people that I care most about, Carlos, are are my coworkers, my peers who work so hard. And I'm going to tell you, Carlos, they would all come into my office, close the door and say, thank you for fighting this. We can't because we're afraid of losing our jobs. We don't want to do that, but thank you. The entire zoo was behind me, but they were afraid to say something.
0: Well, it's kind of what you learned early on that in a leadership role, now you're able to do things that you can't when you're starting out. And
1: that's, And that's that's what I really am so appreciative to the South Florida media for. Because they they provided me a platform to, to communicate with people and to connect with people.
0: Our guest today is Ron McGill. He's a wildlife photographer and animal advocate. He goes by the Goodwill Ambassador title at Zoo Miami. He'll be presenting his new book at Books and Books in Coral Gables next week on January 9th. The title of the book is The Pride of a Lion. And the book is, in the best way, a bait and switch. Because you come in and like, oh, it's a story about this lion cub. And it absolutely is. But it's narrated through you, and then and then Greg Cody, the, the, your, your co-author, mm-hmm. um, he does the thing where he tells this, the story about you.
1: And I tell you what, I, and Greg will be the first one to tell you, this was not my wish at all. I said, Greg... Oh, no, I'm sure of it. I'm sure uh, it's not. Uh, but it was Greg and the publisher said, no, 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 this is what we want to do. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, but really, you know, I felt like it was a bait and switch. You're gonna People want to read about this Lion Cup. They want to hear about the story no, about the Lion Cup.
0: Nope. Yes, but, but, <sighs>
1: yes but, but no. I don't know. I, I still have not... Uh, uh, you know bought into that but well but I, I think it leads us down some interesting paths with
0: it which you mentioned briefly, you were born in New York City to Cuban immigrant parents. And with a last name like McGill. That's true. Yeah That's and folks would not imagine that you're a Cuban, Cuban background and also the tallest Cuban American I've ever met. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that's a, a moniker. You know, a good friend of mine, Paul Castronova, has a radio show on uh, the big 105.9 show and he, he gave me that moniker, the world's tallest Cuban. World's tallest Cuban. As a matter Cuban. of fact, they, have, they, have a, they, they do a, a jingle to it. It's a Lucille Ball song and they go, he's the world's tallest Cuban, <laughs> a seven foot tall Cuban. You know, it's, 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 yeah. it's not seven feet, but I noticed
0: specifically when you came in through the door, you, you ducked. And if you wouldn't have, you would have hit that, that, that throw know. arm up there I'm six 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 seven in shoes all, yeah. right. all right LeBron is scared but I, <laughs> but I know that growing up just from reading the book I realized that um that growing up with a, a Latin family in New York City being as tall and obvious as you were it was. It was tough. You were kind of bullied, right? I was,
1: no, I wasn't kind of bullied. I was really bullied. I, I, mm. uh, I had a very hard time in school. Spanish was my first language, so I kind of Same. learned English going into school. My parents, you know, the whole thing was: listen, we want to make sure you learn Spanish. So we only they only spoke Spanish to me and my sister in the house. Right. And when it's time to go to school, they kind of threw us. <laughs> you know to the sharks <laughs> to the lines right yeah and, and when i went to school it wasn't like here in miami where you had a big hispanic population it was a very non-hispanic population where i went to school ps147 never forget it and um and i was very tall very gangly i mean they called me lurch they called me frankenstein mm. uh they call me magilla gorilla that was a com- cartoon back then yeah um you know and then some of the ethnic you know derogatory terms that I was called. It's pretty. It's pretty derogatory. Let
0: me tell you, No, no hay tan lejos as we say. Yeah. Uh, but I grew up in Broward, and I had the same. I had many of those same first um, uh, contacts, so to speak, coming from a Spanish-speaking world. And I and I have memories of being around of not understanding what was going on around me, kind of watching other kids to see what they, did you have memories like that? Oh, like, I, just I, watching and pick and learning, like, I remember when I learned the term scoot over from a kid on a bus, and I, like, yeah. filed that away. Did you have moments like that? Sometimes? I did have moments
1: like that, you know? But one of the things I really remember um, was even when I got into junior high school and such. you know, uh, when I said goodbye to my dad, I always hugged and kissed my dad. Yeah. And my American friends would look at me like, what are you what, doing? What's wrong with you? Yeah, what's wrong with you? You know, they would shake their dad's hand. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> imagine a little seven-year-old reaching up to shake his yeah, father's yeah, hand. Yeah, yeah is, you know, and 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 it would, I just found it strange because. We were such a hugging, touchy-feely family, and I just thought that was always normal. I always kissed my dad. I always kissed my mom. I always did that, you know? Right. So it was one of those things where it was a culture shock yep. uh, a little bit for me. Um, because
0: but, even though you were born in the U.S., you were very much made to uh, feel like absolutely. you were outside.
1: La- our, yes, very much so, because... Because the Latin culture was very prominent in my home. The cooking, the singing, the dancing, all that stuff. You know, my father was a huge Latin music, all that stuff. You know, he played everything from Ernesto Laquana to Tito Puente all the time in the house, you know. So it was was a culture shock for me. Now, it got worse because I was so tall and gangly that I stuck out like a sore thumb. Mm. And then what made it worse is that I retreated into books because I, I couldn't really, I couldn't socialize. You know, I felt like I was, so I was one of these Straight A students. I mean, I made straight A's so much so that I skipped the fourth grade. Oh, you retreated into ed- into books in, and in education. The education because that's what I had. I said, "This right. is what I can do well. I can't, I can't play ball. I can't do any athletics. I was so uncoordinated, so tall and gangly and horrible. So I just went into books and I did very well scholastically. You know, I never missed a day of school in my first like three or four years of elementary school. Wow. Perfect attendance. Wow. Um, so I retreated." But then I skipped the fourth grade, and everybody said, "Oh, this is great! This is brilliant!" One of the worst things that could have happened to me.
0: Because now you're more of a fish out of water. Exactly. Than all of these older now kids. I'm the
1: older kids, yeah. and I, and it was just horrible. Mm. I, I I always tell people, you know, we hear a lot today about people. Oh, you know, look, get your education out early, get out early. Don't. Yeah. Don't, because life is more than school and grades. Life is socialization. Life is growing up and knowing how to get around with your peers and doing all this. Don't rush through that early part of your life because it's one of the best parts of your life. Who taught
0: you that? Who taught you that, that, that family background, being so strong, who taught you about the importance of that part of your aspect of your You know, my father
1: and both my, my father and mother, my mother was always my greatest fan, but my, my father, mm-hmm. I remember when I said I hate being so tall. Hmm. And you know, my father wasn't extremely. He was six three, right? He wasn't, but he was a big guy. My father looked at me, and I remember him saying, "Son, I promise you, one day, you're going to be grateful for every inch of height you have." Hmm. And he couldn't be more right. You know, I walk into a room today, I as as from a teenager on, I never got into any kind of physical fight or anything. You know, I was like, I never needed to. I just needed to walk in a room, and I was kind of tall and fairly. Yeah, big. like like we're gonna make fun of that kid, but we're not gonna pick it, on him too much. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that, that that's what happened, and and and. Um, he always told me that, and I and I see that now more than ever. You know, like I said, my father only had a third-grade formal education, but the smartest man ever knew. My dad, sixth
0: grade. I yeah. mean, in one of, and sixth grade, in, in air quotes, because it was one of those one-room schoolhouses right. where first-graders and sixth-graders right. Yeah, are my father
1: in Cuba, you know. Yeah,
0: but one of those smartest guys. What part of Cuba were you folks Santiago. Santiago. My dad was also from Oriente, from yeah. that, that southern... Yeah. Southeastern and, part and, of Cuba.
1: And it's so beautiful. You know, I went there several times to, after my dad passed away just to see his home, the mountains and stuff. And, uh, you know, I really, one of the things that really struck home with me is I remember the first time I went to Cuba. I thought that my father was New York, you know, because mm. we would go into the city of New York and he'd see all those Cuban friends downtown. And stuff like that, you know, all that.
0: He was I, comfortable. He adapted it, it to com- environment. And I thought
1: that's what it was. That was New York. I realized when I go to Cuba that my father's Cuba. You know, I saw my father in the face of so many Cubans. We hear so many things. I'm not going to get into politics, but I'll tell you the people of Cuba, the salt and the earth of Cuba are some of the nicest, most generous, wonderful people I've ever met in my life. Yeah. I got off a plane in Cuba. I'll tell you this, Carlos. It was really funny because the first time I went and I've got my cameras, you know, I was there to speak at a at a wildlife conference. And I get off the plane and people saying, people here in Miami tell you can't go there. You know, you're going to get arrested. They're going to, you know, harass you. i like, oh, geez, okay. So you get off and I you know there's no jetways you get off the plane you start walking on the runway there mm-hmm. and the customs officer comes walking right over to me and if you ever seen the customs officers in Cuba it's women dressed in a very formal military looking type of uniform with these fishnet stockings with the little seam in the back and they do not smile and no they don't <laughs> smile and she comes right over to me and I'm thinking oh here we go she's going to confiscate my cameras or something and I'll never forget this as long as I live she comes up to me she goes permiso señor excuse me sir Uteno no esa señor de sábado gigante are you the guy on Sabado de Vigante? And I looked at her, I thought I'm being punked. I go, Yes. And she looks at her partner over there. She goes, See, esel, es el and they come up and they take a picture with me. Amazing. And, and I'm thinking to myself, this is a customs officer here in Cuba that I'm thinking he's coming to arrest me or confiscate my cameras. And she just wanted to take a picture with me and her associate. And clearly you have to have a moment where you're like the reach of, of the things that I've been able to be involved oh, in. That show. And I, you know, I didn't want to do that show at first. First of all, I never even heard of it. You know, I'd never even heard of it. When 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 Don Francisco Mario Kuchberger, came, came up to me uh, in, in uh, at the zoo back in gosh in the early '80s and said, "Listen, I, I'd like you to be on this show." I do Sabado Gigante. I don't even know what that show is. He goes, "Well, it's in Spanish." And by that time, I had almost forgotten totally Spanish because I had gotten so rebellious because I was so hurt by being bullied mm. that I wanted to be as far away from that as possible. Oh, you put away? I put the away Latino the Spanish. I lit- I literally. I'm Ron McGill. Okay, there's nothing, you know. How did your
0: parents pronounce their names?
1: Ron My father hated the name. My mother loved the name. So, uh, you know, because my father would say Ronnie, 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 you know, and that Ron was always like Bacardi, you know, Run Rum. That's how they say. (laughs) And that's what Don Francisco would say all the time on the show. Ron Bacardi del Bosque, you know, And, and 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 I I really pushed it away. So I'd forgotten my Spanish, and and I said I don't speak Spanish anymore. He goes, I'll teach you. Oh my God. I go. So I relearned Spanish on that show. Can I just
0: ask you to step back for a second and and have you appreciate what it was like to relearn Spanish from Don Francisco and, from Salvador Gigante himself? But the irony how is how insane that the, is.
1: The irony is though he would teach me and I would get it better and better as I spoke on the show, he would caution me after the show. He goes, Don't get too good. Because the the shtick was to make fun of my Spanish. That was his (laughs) shtick on the show. Okay, he'd make me repronounce things, and I would go back at him. I'd make him start repronouncing things in English. So we had this back and forth. That became kind of a favorite of the audience. You know, me going after him, and uh, you know, he—that man—helped change my life. I'm going to tell you beyond belief. Because when I said I I sat in his dressing room one day and I said, "Don Mario, I, I just don't think this is much for me," because you know, it was the girls dressed in. Clothes that were hardly covering what needed to be covered, doing the coochie coochie next to me as I'm talking about animals, and I'm thinking, you know, I think I'm this looks like it's exploiting the animal. I don't want to really do that. And he sat me down, and I'll never forget this piece of advice. He says, Ron, let me give you a piece of advice. Millions of people watch this show every Saturday. And those millions of people are not necessarily the same people who watch National Geographic or Discovery Channel. Mm-hmm. This is a whole different audience. You have an opportunity to connect here to people who might normally connect with you and teach them about animals. Get them to learn. That's your passion, right? You want them to get them to learn about wildlife, to care about wildlife. I go, yeah, yeah. And I said, okay. Boy, I'll tell you what, another incredibly wise man. I've gone around the world many times and every corner of the world, people have come up to me from that show, from that show and said, "Rama McGill, when I was in Cuba, I'm walking down Old Havana, people yelling from the balconies, Ron McGill, Ron McGill, people coming down, inviting me in for dinner, taking pictures. I was swamped. I felt like I was some kind of superstar or something from that show.
0: That's funny, and, and Romagila, I imagine that's how your, par- you, that's how your, that's how your parents right. pronounce it at home. Yeah. Talk to me about the beginnings of, obviously you're passionate about animals, talk to me about the beginnings, because I, I, I'm reading, I know it started with Marlon Perkins. Marlon
1: Perkins and Jim Fowler.
0: The Wild Kingdom, which Wild was Kingdom. A Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. I remember sitting in front of the TV between my abuelitos. Yeah, yeah, giving your cracker. age away. Though. I am, I am. <laughs> dipping a cracker into my my watered-down Cuban coffee, watching uh, Jim uh, Russell the Anaconda. Yeah, while while Marlon Perkins narrated. It, exactly.
1: Yeah. You know that show, seven thirty Sunday night, right before the Wonderful World of Disney, and that was my church, Carlos. I mean, I watched that show like people go to church. I would sit. We only had a little twelve inch black and white television set in the apartment at the time, with one of those you know extendable antennas that broke after the first week, and my dad put a coat hanger in there to get better reception. <laughs> and and I'd watch that show, and I would dream. I'd say, that's the guy I want to be. I want to be Jim Fowler, other than my dad. Excuse me. Other than my dad, he was my hero. I watched him. I said, that's what I want to do. And people would say, you're out of your mind. You're some kid from Cuban immigrant living in a small apartment. You're never, you better come up with plan B. Well, but my parents said, "No, you you believe that and go for it. Just you set your goals high."
0: That's you know, my dad had very much a, a similar wish for me. He never said other than maybe you should try being a dentist because <laughs> they sit indoors all day and they they work in air conditioning. Uh, other than that, he never said anything. He just wanted me to get a, a degree and go to school.
1: That was my dad. Uh, yeah, my dad wanted me to get a degree and go to school. And this is the uh, this is another kind of off on a tangent. The irony: I went to the University of Florida, and in my senior year. I was applying for a job and I knew they were going to open this new zoo, Miami Metro Zoo, right down the street from oh, where I Oh, now I'm you're lit. dating yourself. Okay, well, I am at the University of Florida, my senior year, and I'm thinking that's how I get my foot in the door. This is not a this is not a career that's easy to just get into. It's not like, you know, becoming a construction guy or beca- this is a very small small circle. So I said I got to get my foot in the door, so I applied for the job thinking, okay, hopefully I can get it and then when I graduate I can go there. Well, they said you can have the job, but you have to come right now. But up until this point,
0: okay, you took that childhood dream yeah. and your parents' support. How did you—what fed it? What continued to feed it, it into just your college watching, years?
1: watching animals. I mean, you know, I moved down here when I was 12, but until then— I would I would train squirrels in my yard. Come on, I trained them. They'd come and eat out of my hand. I had birds that would come and eat out of my hand. I'd sit there, and my parents would be amazed. They'd watch me because then they'd come out, and the animals wouldn't come. When they, my parents were next to me, the animals would never come. But they'd watch out of a little window out of our our house there, and they'd watch how the animals would come. And they, I don't, you know, I, I I remember watching that first squirrel, Carlos, and the way he looked at me as he sat there and just ate the peanut that I gave him, and I just I said to myself yeah, you know, this is a connection here. There's something here that just made me want to always make sure that they were going to be okay. Yeah. It was just something I felt like, and maybe it stemmed from the fact that they accepted me when a lot of my kid peers would not. You know, I was being bullied and stuff like that, so I had these animals that didn't judge me. Oh, you had a refuge. Yeah, I had a, I, It was a bit of a sanctuary for me. I'd get yeah. out there, and these animals, they'd come around me. They weren't calling me names. They weren't making fun of me. They weren't, you know, I had friends. They were my friends. And that just kind of evolved and became a much more powerful thing for me to the point where... I always knew I wanted to work with them. My my initial thing was I wanted to be a veterinarian because, of course, I want to help animals. So I want to be an animal doctor, right? Right. Well, that dream hit the can as soon as I took my first chemistry course at the University of Florida. (laughs) Uh, And no matter how hard I tried, I had tutors, I had everything. And I try to tell kids when I speak to them at schools, you know, and stuff, I say, listen, guys, the key thing my father used to always tell me, he says, listen, when you go to school, he would go to every one of my teachers at the beginning of school, my mom too, and say, I don't know what the format is for grades now, but it used to be you had the scholarship grade, effort grade, conduct grade. A1A would be perfect, right? Mm. So when I went to school, he would tell the teacher, listen, I know you have a lot of focus on the scholarship grade, but it's the second grade, that effort grade, that's gonna be important to me. If my kid comes home with a D1A, I'm never gonna get mad at him, because you're telling me he's trying as hard as he can. Right. Not everyone can get everything, and he always told me, don't be defined by your scholarship grades. Be defined by your effort grades, because he would tell my teacher, I'll never forget that. He said, listen, if my kid comes home with a B2B, He's gonna have a problem with me
0: because that's that's such a, a that was such a nuanced um, uh, humanistic view that your dad had. He yeah. just wanted you effort to be involved and be exactly
1: engaged Engage, effort. and Always try your hardest. That was the big. My mom was the same way. Because my dad was more forceful about it.
0: And that's what got you to University of Florida and to leave house how early in your I left, senior year? in My year senior year, so, and so a that, semester earlier. And that
1: so. was a huge disappointment to my father. Oh my goodness! My father was crushed. I'll never forget it because I said, Pop, I'm leaving the university. I'm gonna I'm gonna start this job as a zookeeper and he looked at me and he goes, You leaving the university to shovel blank? And I said Shovel poo. Yeah, shovel poo and I go, yeah. Pop, it's more than that. You know, I gotta get my foot in the door, I've gotta work my way up, I've gotta learn, I've gotta you know and I could see the profound disappointment in his face.
0: Because to you, this was like uh, getting offered, a, if you're a business major, getting offered a job on Wall Street before you graduate. Exactly.
1: That's exactly what it was. But it's a he great saw analogy. as
0: quitting. Honestly. Quitting school
1: to become a janitor for animals. Oof. And...
0: And it sounds I, you were so close to your dad, so that must have been so painful. Yeah,
1: you know, my dad, because my dad worked so hard, Carlos. He yeah. was a carpenter. He worked so hard. My dad would come home. His calluses on his hands were huge. He asked me to take his boots off because he was tired. I mean, my, my dad worked so, so very hard. And I've never worked hard a day in my life. And there's a guilt trip that I carry about that, you know. Both my parents, I mean, I remember looking back now, my parents were, you know, using credit cards to pay other credit cards just to go from one bill to the next. The sacrifices they made for me and my sister are just enormous. So I felt really devastated when I realized how disappointed my dad was. But then my dad came back to me one day He goes, listen, son, I just want you to know, I just want you to be happy you go be a garbage man if you want. Go collect garbage, but be the best garbage man you can be. Hmm. Okay, that's all I want. I want you to be the best as long as you're happy. I don't have to live your life, you have to live your life. And that resonated with me. And I'm sad my dad passed away fairly young. He didn't get to see me in the height of things like Sao Lojigante and stuff like that, but he did get to see some things changing. Um, but I, 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 get to see, I feel his presence a lot, and I feel that you know he's been looking down, and maybe in a way I'm kind of I'm lucky that he's watching from up above and not, not right next to me because he'd be asking me for free tickets to the zoo for all of his friends forever. Um, <laughs> there, there was a point, you even write about
0: that a little bit, where your guilt is assuaged a little bit. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, what what was the moment where, because you clearly have come to terms with that. I mean, it still is something that you remember, but you've come to terms with it in a way.
1: Well, for me... I guess one of the biggest things, going back to the University of Florida, was not getting that degree. I just felt, wow, I failed. I felt I failed the university, because you know, you only have certain people that are accepted, and if everyone's accepted, there's somebody who's gonna be not accepted. Mm. And I felt like I took the spot of somebody at the university, and the university invested in me by giving me that spot, and they expected me to finish. Um, and I didn't finish, and that was a huge cloud over me. And then one day, and I'll never forget this, um, I got a call from the dean of the College of Agricultural and Life Sciences. And she says, you're being nominated for the Distinguished Alumnus Award. And I, I thought I was being punked. That's one of the most prestigious awards the university gives, I think, and it's, you know, since 1853 when it was established, I think there's about 150 people that have gotten that award. Wow. It's a huge award. Yeah. Um, and I said, what? And she goes, yeah. Well, anyway, to make a long story short. Yeah, went through the Florida Senate, went there, and got approved, and I got this thing. and. I go up there to speak at commencement. Me and Tim Tebow got the Distinguished <laughs> Alumnus Award together. Okay. So we're, I'm, sitting next, I'm standing next to Tim Tebow. One we're of the talking, greatest college quarterbacks oh my in history. I'm, I'm, standing, go I'm standing next to Tim Tebow, who graduated. College, I'm saying, here is. I'm the zookeeper. And I'm getting the same award. I and President Fox comes up to me to congratulate me. They had this, this kind of luncheon to honor us. And I said, you know, President Fox, you do know I didn't graduate. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he goes, son, your career is worth multiple degrees. And that was taking a huge monkey off my back. I can't begin to tell you. I mean, I remember I teared up when I looked at him. I said, President Fox, you have no idea what that means. And he just looked and he goes, me and this university are proud of you. And I'm telling you, Carlos, there's no way I can put into words what a profound effect that had on me. Um, You know. I've established a scholarship for the university every year. I give a $5,000 scholarship to a person working in conservation and ecology at the University of Florida. Wow. Um, And it's just just a small way to give back, you know, because, again, I keep I don't believe I, I deserve half of this stuff. I just feel like I've been in the right place at the right time, and I've been surrounded by great people. My greatest mentors, a lot of the journalists, the media people, the photographers, they've all taken me under their wing. Jim Fowler. I told you that guy was my hero. It's like I've never been starstruck. And I've worked with Shaquille O'Neal, with Michael Jackson. I've worked with a lot of very high profile people, but never been starstruck. But Jim Fowler was a guy I looked at like a god. And I remember he was doing a national tour about. Forty years ago, this guy that you saw on, is, of um, on this little uh, black and white television—he's doing a national tour promoting Wild Kingdom, where you would go to different cities and do these presentations with animals. And every time, every city he would go to, he would get with the local zoo to bring animals because he didn't want to fly with animals and stress them out going all across the country. And he was coming to Miami, and I said, "Oh gosh, please send me." He called the zoo and he like to, "Please send me. I'll never forget this because." It was at the Miami Beach Convention Center and I go down and he's got his dressing room door it says Jim Fallon dressing room door I knock on the door he opens the door and he's a big guy he's like 6'4 but really like a football player really built well real handsome guy too and he goes you must be Ron he's got this great baritone voice he goes, you must be Ron I go yes sir yes I am make a long story short he became one of my greatest mentors he took me under his wing for over 30 years he taught me how to work with animals uh, I would be at his home in in, in New York. He in Connecticut. Um, you know, he, he he came with me to Panama to work on a project preserving harpy eagles. We did all kinds of things together. Uh, the well, most, imp- I, I'm sorry, go ahead. The most important thing he taught me was, Ron, as long as you properly respect animals, you should never be in a position to be afraid of them. And that was one of the things that I really, you know. He he, like me, was so disillusioned by today's media sensationalizing everything. You know, when I was a kid, I watched National Geographic, I watched Wild Kingdom. Versus a river monster, yeah. You uh, know, uh, you know when animals attack, the world's deadliest. Everything sensationalizing. And he taught me to understand. When you understand animals, you won't be afraid of them.
0: Our guest today is Ron McGill. He's a wildlife photographer and the greatest animal advocate uh, that you can find in South Florida. Uh, He's at Zoo Miami. He'll be presenting his new book at Books and Books in Coral Gables next week, January 9th. You know, we're talking about the, the different worlds that this kind of passion for animals has opened up. And I, I can't get past the I can't go any further without talking about how you met your wife. Right. Oh. Like like <laughs> there are now a pair of eagles named yeah. af, that are they're named Ron and Rita at, yeah. the, at the zoo. So uh, tell me about like, well, those, 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 eagles, those eagles. Those
1: eagles are not the, at the zoo. They're actually wild eagles. They're wild eagles, oh. um, and they are, there's a nest that uh, um, has has a cam on it that people can watch. And as a matter of fact, there's eggs in the nest right now. Oh wow! Uh, but that was a huge honor that was bestowed upon us by the, the folks at Wildlife Rescue of Dade County, which is, um, you know, one of the best wildlife rescue and rehabilitation groups here in South Florida that I support. And as a matter of fact, the founder of that organization I went to high school with Miami Palmetto Senior High. We went to, to high school together.
0: Well, it's just a way of of how, of how like your notoriety leads to the conservation that you always Well had, I, I, was, right? I was
1: very very flattered by that and it's and it's a great story but the the story about my wife and I tell this when I when I speak again especially to younger kids in schools I mm. say listen here's a classic example I was always told by my parents that listen there's a good reason w- for every bad thing that happens you just have to wait sometimes to see what it is mm. and this is a classic example it was about uh 37 years ago now i was moving some crocodiles i was young i'm a young guy tend to be cocky think you're immortal you get stupid sometimes it happens with young guys mm. and uh, i was careless and i got bitten pretty badly a crocodile now a crocodile bit my hand um as i'm moving it i was fortunate to have some good guys around me that jumped on the crocodile right away to you know, Yikes. not not allow him to yank my hand off. Yikes! Um, but I remember they had to put a shovel in his mouth to open his mouth so I could get my hand out. Oh my god! And I remember god. getting my hand out and looking at all the blood and everything. I thought, like, oh, this is not good. Ironically, I really didn't feel a lot of pain, and maybe it was the shock of the whole thing. But I had to go right to the hospital. They bring me in the emergency room now. I got to have a surgeon come in. A surgeon come in and do surgery on my hand. They had a you know, fix. it was pretty messed up. So they do surgery on my hand, and I'm sitting there, and I remember going up in the hospital room, and I got a cast all the way up to my elbow, my hand just sat on the cast, and I remember talking to my, my parents and thinking, okay, you know, every good reason for every good th- what's the good reason for this? Give it time, right? Okay? And then, you know, my, my father my father, and mother, paciencia y fe, paciencia y fe, patience and faith, just wait and see, you never know. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, and this is gonna sound politically incorrect, but you know what, I'm of an age now, I'm just gonna say it anyway. I'm thinking to myself, okay, I think every guy's had that little fantasy of having a beautiful nurse come take care of him. So that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking I'm going to be in the bed here, and I've got this thing, and this beautiful nurse is going to come and hold my hand. Door opens up. My nurse is a guy. Not a very nice guy at that time either. He would wake me up to give me a sleeping pill. I'll never forget that. He woke up. You have to take this pill. I go, what's it for? It's "It's a sleeping pill. I go, I was asleep. So I'm all depressed in there. and And then I say, well, now you have to go down a couple of days in there. I'm still in the hospital. You have to go down to physical therapy. So I go down to physical therapy, and you know I've got this vision. The physical therapist, this person, this guy, this is going to bend my hand and break my bones, and it's going to be a horrible, painful experience. So I'm sitting there waiting for my physical therapist to walk in. The door opens, and Carlos. For a moment, I was frightened. I thought I died and went to heaven hmm. because in front of me was an angel. Oh boy, the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I remember she came up to me. I don't. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, where you look at somebody, and all of a sudden everything around them is kind of blurry, and all you hear is like. That's what happened i mean it really happened I'm a, i was thank you god and she comes over to me and she holds my hand she goes hi i'm going to be part of your therapy team and i'm just saying thank, you god. thank <laughs> you god long story short a year later i married her and it was the perfect i mean you know we celebrate our 35 year uh wedding anniversary next month amazing and it's um she's uh, i mean a goddess i i cannot believe i got to meet that woman um a
0: year later a year later, I married her. Yeah. So she must have heard angels too when she saw you. No, on the contrary.
1: <laughs> on the contrary. Um, she had moved here from Los Angeles uh, to be with another guy. Um, that fortunately fell through. Um, and, Ron and I, hung around and, at the edge. And I, at the time, was actually dating uh, 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 another woman here, you know, and... Uh, but I realized, you know, the, the way I explain it to people, and this might be a little too much over the top, but the way I explain it, is I said, listen, this other woman I was dating at the time, what a wonderful lady, she's just a wonderful, great friend, we're still friends. Yeah. Um, oh, nice. And, and uh, you know, we'd sit and watch a movie and eat popcorn and really have a great time watching the movie, you know? Rita and I would sit to watch the movie and never get to watch the movie. <laughs> that 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 was the difference, you know. And that's it. just uh, it's just something about a passion. It's something about a chemistry that was really just incredible. That's
0: amazing, and and I'm sure she's been a partner of yours as you've as you've then taken this career. Do you, do you have children? Yes, have? I have two kids. You have two kids. Tell me about them. Where where have have they? Do they have an interest in? Well, both of, kids, both of my kids,
1: both my kids like animals. Um,
0: uh, How can they not? Right.
1: Yeah, but they're they're. they're their careers have taken them different ways. My son actually is an uh, editor and a cameraman for Only in Date. <laughs> oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, the um, world is too small. Yeah, yeah, and um, and my daughter is an executive for um, uh, iHeartMedia out in Los Angeles.
0: Oh, wow, they so, both have gone into media, which they is They both have gone into media. They so they clearly,
1: what they saw out
0: of your career was like,
1: they kind of like something in uh, dad's the, reach. The irony is, they're both so much better than I ever was in whatever their perspective feels that they're doing. My daughter's the most articulate conversationalist i've ever met my son his creativity and editing and putting together videos and doing shows is fantastic i mean these are things i have him edit stuff for me i mean i've won a bunch of awards with stuff that he edited and stuff for me really yeah yeah so he's 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 really gifted that way so i'm real proud of both of them but they both thankfully take after their mom oh that's
0: um, and, but that now you you have won a couple of Emmys for six. For, for, for six Emmys for documentaries and such that you've put together, right?
1: Yeah, well, you know, they're documentaries that I helped produce, but I I, got, mm. I can't, you know, I've worked with some incredible journalists on those documentaries. You know, Michael Williams, uh, um, Christy Kruger from Channel 10. I mean, the, and the cameraman, Ralph Murciano, um, you know, Bill Damas. These people are just incredible. I was kind of riding their coattails. It was mm. my idea to put together these shows. I put together their itinerary. It was, it was my idea, but really, you know, Christy's writing Bill, and Michael's writing Bill, and and Ralph's editing that's a total team effort. But I was really the least important person on that team when we won those Emmys. You know what? What strikes me so much is like a, a solitary thing that
0: you've been so involved with, which is photography. And I'm picturing you. You're you're a Nikon ambassador, which I think there's only like thirty or forty of them in the yeah, world. That's true. And and it, I'm picturing you alone out in in the wilds taking pictures of animals, and it's just you with the squirrels as a yeah, look in your but backyard. See,
1: you just you just you just said something that that was kind of, I'm never alone. Hmm. I'm never alone. When I'm with a camera out there, Carlos, I'm in absolute utopia. It's just, it's it's a beautiful feeling. I could sit at a water hole in Africa Hmm. for days without another person coming by I mean I would miss my wife and my kids but I, I could literally sit there and my wife's the first one who tells me well, you know we were in Africa not too long ago and we came across across a, a crash of rhinos nine rhinos with babies nursing and I'm and I'm photographing I'm just going crazy I can't believe we're there look at these rhinos you know in dangerous species. And, and I'm photographing I don't realize how much time is going by so I keep taking all these photographs and all of a sudden I hear my wife in the back seat and she's like <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> and I look back I go what? Goes, oh, how many pictures can you take of these rhinos? I go, honey, the light is changing, they're moving, all this stuff is happening, it's unbelievable. She goes, okay, and I'm like, and then you hear it again, you hear, and I go, okay, we gotta go. How many
0: hours it had it been at that point? I had
1: probably about two and a half. Not <laughs> moving, is, just, just photographing rhinos. That is great patience. That is I,
0: incredible patience. And she patience. has
1: tremendous patience. And now she's actually taken up photography herself. She's become quite a good photographer, you know. So, uh, yeah, I. I I don't know of any other woman that could have been married to me and tolerated me the way she has because she is just, and the good thing about her too, this is going to sound, I don't want to, I don't want to sound really negative about myself. I am not really the most social person in the world. You know, I... I, If you say so. Well, (laughs) you know, when we go to these galas and things like that, I'm not really much into dressing up and and talking, but my wife loves it, and she looks so good. And when she's on my arm, she does all the talking, and it's such a pleasure because I can just sit there and let her talk. She
0: protects your energy. She does.
1: She does, does, and she's got these great... You know, because when you're somewhat of a public figure, people come up to you and go, Hey, Ron, how you doing? And I don't know whether I've met them before or not, and I don't have the greatest memory for names. And she does this great kind of thing for me. She goes, "Hi, I'm Rita. You are, you know." Really, she, she's brilliant. That is she, such a gift, right she, there. She saves me all the time, you know.
0: Yeah. Otherwise, you'd be going, oh, uh, what's, "What's going on, animal?" Bestia? Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. <laughs> Oye, fulano, cómo tu está. You know, I mean, it's just it's one of those things where. Yeah, she's uh, she's the be- must better half of me than. And, and I'm sure she's also been
0: involved also with this, the endowment. Uh it's it's the, it's the Ron McGill... Conservation Endowment. Conservation Endowment, uh, yeah. which you get into a little bit in your book as to how that started. But that's got to be something that you're really proud of. I mean, it's now raised millions of dollars, right? It is,
1: yes. It has. It's what I'm most proud of in my life because every dime that is raised in that endowment can only be spent on animals in the wild. Not a penny of that can be spent at the zoo.
0: Which was big to you, right? It was like, huge to There me. was a moment, there was a switch, right, mm-hmm. where, where you said, I, I need to help these... These populations before they have to end up, up in the zoo.
1: Exactly. I uh, like I said over and over. If the zoo is the last place that we see these animals, we failed. Zoo's number one priority should be to ensure that animals can live in the wild where they belong. In a perfect world, Carlos, we wouldn't need any zoos. Yeah. And I have some of my peers hate it when I say that, but it's a reality to me. That's what I feel. In a perfect world, we wouldn't need any zoos.
0: What What are your, some of your like your favorite accomplishments that that endowment has led to?
1: Oh, geez, well, be able to establish a scholarship at the University of Florida, be able to uh, set up, you know, buy vehicles, research vehicles for cheetah research in in Africa, for jaguar research in in Brazil. Um, You know, I bought a new van for the Audubon, Florida, here to do uh, studies in the Everglades with with spoonbills and all that stuff. I buy these vehicles motors for their boats. Uh, I helped finance a new... uh, uh, um, uh, tundra buggy to do research out in Corkscrew Swamp. So, you know, being able to provide these scientists with the tools that they need to do the work, the conservation work, to gather the data, because nobody gives them. The con- nobody goes into conservation for the money. You don't make any money. These are people that are really working paycheck to paycheck, but they do because they love what they're doing.
0: Ron, it has been such a pleasure to hear you speak so passionately for the hour. Thank you so much for spending this time with us.
1: No, thank you. It's been my privilege.
0: Our guest today was Ron McGill. He's a wildlife photographer and the greatest advocate for animals he's also the goodwill ambassador at zoo miami he'll be presenting his new book at books and books in coral gables next week january 9th the title of the book is the pride of a lion and that's sundown for wednesday january 3rd leslie obaya atkinson is our lead producer elisa baena is our producer sergio bustos is wlrn's vp of news and katie munoz is our director of live programming Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's VP of Radio, and our engineer is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we talk about the movies you should have seen in 2023 and the movies we're looking forward to the most this year. Movie critic René Rodriguez joins us. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only.
1: public media